Genesis 37, 1 through 11. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them, to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in his mind. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, well, good morning. Good to see you all. Uh, my name is Reed Kappel. I serve as the campus pastor here. If I have not met you, hi, nice to meet you. Uh, we are really uh, glad that you're with us this morning as we continue on in our series in the book of Genesis. But I want to pray for our time and ask the Lord's blessing um, as we hear from him through his word. So let's pray. Father in heaven, I know that in, in this room, um, there, there's a mix of emotions, a mix of, of feelings that we bring into this space. Lord, we come from uh, busy weeks, um, the start of a new school year, some of us starting new careers, new jobs, new transitions. Lord, we, what, whatever it is that we have gone through, Lord, we know that you meet us um, wherever we are. And so, Lord, I pray that in this time, we would come to meet you, that we would come to hear from you. And so, Lord, may you speak to us through your word. May we hear and understand your truth that we might live our lives in accordance with your design that truly is for our good and for your glory. And so may this time be honoring to you and edifying to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, So on September 16th, 2018, in Berlin, uh, the world record marathon time was set at two hours, one minute, and 39 seconds. And I think we have a picture of the world record holder. It's, uh, there, there he is, look at him, it's just beautiful. Uh, no, just kidding, that's not, that's not him, that's not him. Uh, so uh, we had, the, the world record's actually by a guy by the name of Iliad Kinchog, and he's from Kenya. And that was a real time, he actually set the world record of two hours, one minute, 39 seconds. And in fact, that's actually not his fastest time. He ran an unofficial marathon at two hours and 25 seconds, which is just unheard of. Now, and evidenced by that ridiculous picture I showed, I, I consider myself to be a runner to some degree, but, but it would be absurd if I were to compare myself to someone like Iliad. 
I mean, he's in a completely different league and category than I am as a runner. I mean, if I were to kind of compare myself to him, every human being on the face of the earth would laugh at me, including my own mother, and she thinks everything I do is wonderful. And so, like, the, the reason why is because I don't, I don't look at Iliad as someone who is my competition. I don't envy someone like Iliad. And the reason why is because you and I, we don't envy celebrities and all-stars. We may look up to them, we may admire them, we may even idolize them, but we don't envy them because we envy only those whom we actually think we can compete with. Envy doesn't take place in our lives as we are uh, uh, introduced to celebrities and all-stars. Envy emerges in our homes, our neighborhoods, our place of work, our schools, among those that we are in relationship with. As St. Thomas Aquinas once said, he said, we only envy those whom we wish to rival or surpass in reputation. So when I hear about Iliad running the marathon in just over two hours, I'm filled with amazement, but I'm not filled with envy. Why? Because I don't think he's even in my league. But when I hear about a friend of mine or a colleague or an acquaintance who's at my similar stage of life, similar level of fitness, and they run a marathon, You've got to believe that I'm going and watching and checking out their time to see where I match up, and I hope that my time is better. Because that person is the one I'm most likely to envy, not Iliad. We envy those who we are close to. We envy those who are just slightly better than us, not the all-star, not the celebrity. And when envy strikes in our hearts in those moments, it actually doesn't take very long for us to come to realize the very inconvenient truth that envy never gets you what you want. If there's one thing to be true of this pernicious vice that has deep claws into our lives, it's this, that envy never gets you what you want. And there is perhaps no greater story in the whole biblical storyline that communicates uh, the phenomenon of this vice better than the story of Joseph and his brothers. And then this morning, we we come to the story. If you've been with us, we've been journeying through Genesis. We started back in March, and we come now to the last narrative in the book of Genesis that's centered around the life of Joseph. And as we'll see this morning, the story of Joseph, it doesn't start out very well for Joseph. And in fact, as the story unfolds, it continues to not go very well for Joseph. But through it all, what we find is this beautiful truth that in in the midst of Joseph's hardships, trials, and difficulties, difficulties, God's provision and providence, his sovereign reign and rule over Joseph's life and over all of creation is leading everything towards this good and glorious end. And so this morning I want to introduce us to Joseph and the the, the tensions between he and his brothers. And and if you're familiar with the story or not, uh, one thing just to kind of know about Joseph, and we'll see this throughout the story, is that Joseph is a really righteous, moral person. But, but if, only, if, if all we had was the opening verses of chapter 37, we probably wouldn't conclude that. We would probably conclude that Joseph is nothing more than this bratty, self-absorbed, narcissistic little punk kid who deserves to get beat up by his brothers. And I can say that as a, as a big brother and a little brother. Like his behavior seems to warrant some of this kind of resentment from his brothers and evidenced by the fact that the first thing we learned about Joseph is that he's a tattletale. Look look at verse 2. It says this, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. And then skipping down just a bit, it says, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. 
Now, I understand, like, if, you, if, if there's bad behavior in your workplace, in your school, like, you should report that. But, like, don't you get the sense that Joseph just, like, he's just looking for a chance to bust his brothers. Like, he just can't wait. Like, I remember when my oldest brother, Casey, when he was about 13, I was six, he bought a BB gun, and my mom told him, you cannot shoot live animals with that thing. I was like, okay. And so he went outside, and the first day he had it, I walk outside, and I see him shoot a bird, and you got to believe I went running inside, just so excited to bust him, and my my brother, Casey, never owned a BB gun after that. And now, it wasn't because I love, like, birds of flight. I'm very passionate about, you know, wildlife. It's no, because I just wanted to bust my brother. And that's exactly what's going on with Joseph. He's not really this upright person as we see in these opening verses. And so there's a sense in which we look at Joseph and say, he kind of had it coming, dude. But then on top of that, you have Joseph's father, Jacob, who's referred to as Israel. He shows this kind of unabashed favoritism towards Joseph right in front of his other brothers. And so, like, this is not helping the situation either. I mean, to the point that that basically Jacob gives Joseph a gift, communicating and expressing very explicitly his favoritism for him. And it's not like a gift he says, hey, just enjoy this in private. Don't let anybody else see it. He's like, no, no, wear this coat that looks like a rainbow for crying out loud and wear it in front of your brother so that all the world may know you are my favorite. Jacob is basically giving Joseph the equivalent of this T-shirt to be worn in public, essentially. And so this is not helping the situation that Joseph has with his brothers. And then on top of that, Joseph decides to tell his brothers this dream, where in the dream, his brothers are his servants. And so, I mean, Joseph, he's got to learn how to make friends here. He's not doing himself any favors. And all of this adds up to this point where his brothers are filled with such resentment and hate and envy they, they, they decide to come up with this malevolent plan to end Joseph's life. And we see this in verse 19 and 20. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Now, this is, this is beyond just sibling rivalry. This is beyond boys being boys. Like This is, this is a, a hatred that comes from a place so dark and so sinister. Like, how, how on earth did this take place? How did they get to this point? Where does a hatred like this come from? And we see the answer in, in verse 11. Very simply, we read these words, and his brothers were jealous of him, referring to Joseph. His brothers were jealous of him. Now, now, even though the English word there is the word jealous, it's, it's actually much better to translate that Hebrew word as envy. In fact, some translations, maybe your translation this morning, has the word envy there. Usually when this word is referenced in the Old Testament, the word envy is typically the better translation. And, and the reason I say this is because jealousy, there, there's a distinction between jealousy and envy. We tend to use them synonymously, but they are different. Jealousy is simply wishing that you had it better. It's wishing that you had it better. When you look at someone else's life, you wish that you had what they had or had it better. Envy is being bitter towards those who have it better. Does that make sense? You can stitch that on a pillow, put it on a coffee mug, you'll remember that one. But jealousy simply wants your life to be better. Envy is bitter towards those who have it better. Jealousy wants more of what others have. Envy wants others to have less. And there is a difference there. Envy desires to see people put beneath them. Envy desires to see yourself elevated through the act of someone else being put beneath you. Envy is basically, if you will, envy is hate with jealousy glasses on. 
That's what envy is. It's not just wanting more, it's wanting the other to have less so that you can have this kind of fabricated, falsified identity that you're better than other people. But ironically, we find that envy, when when we kind of allow envy to kind of get its claws into us in this way, we find the irony that envy never gets us what we want. And in fact, envy gets us actually less than what we want and ends up making us less than what we want and who we want to be. And it's this vice that that tore apart Joseph and his family. It's this vice that put Joseph on this trajectory of where he finds himself thrown into a pit, left for dead, a slave in Egypt as the story unfolds. And so this vice has the ability to ruin our lives, to rip us apart, to destroy homes, relationships, families, even entire businesses. And so if this is true, if, if this vice has this capability then we ought to have an attentiveness to it in our own lives to see where we are prone to envy and to see where we have to war against it. And so as we look at this story and kind of look at our own lives through the lens of Joseph's story and his brothers, we should ask the question, how do we war, how do we battle with envy? And, and, I, and I want us to begin typically where envy begins. It begins with this disgusting game we play called the comparison game. We compare ourselves to others constantly. And so if we want to know how envy works, the first question we should ask ourselves is where are you comparing yourself? Where are you comparing yourself? Maybe you've heard the expression, you know, we're we're, we're approaching football season. Maybe you've heard the expression that football is a a game of inches, that a a team might, might win or lose a game based on how close they are inches away from the end zone. In the same way, I think you could describe the vice of envy as a vice of inches. And what I mean by that is that envy tends to grow when we are comparing ourselves to those in our life who are just slightly better than us. Remember, like I said, I'm not comparing myself to Iliad. He's a much better runner than I am, but I am comparing myself to those who are in my similar age and stage of life, similar fitness level, and who run just faster than me. Those are the people who I tend to envy. My envy rears its ugly head when I interact with those who make just slightly more money than me, those who are just slightly in better shape than me, who, who, uh, who go on slightly better vacations than me, those who are slightly funnier than me. That's, that's a tough one. That's a tough one for me. I'm just telling you, seriously. We tend to find envy being birthed in our souls when we are around those who are just slightly better than us. Because in those moments, what I'm wanting, when, when envy has its way in my heart, I'm not just wanting what that person has, I'm wanting them to have less than what I have. And so even though if it means like, man, I'm never gonna be able to be faster than them, well, what I can hope for is for them to be slower. Can, can they maybe succumb to some injury where they aren't able to run? Like, that's, like, this is what's going on in my twisted brain, people. But this is how envy works in us. In those moments, I'm not just discontented with my life. I'm disillusioned about my identity. That's what happens with envy. When, when you look at someone who's slightly better than you, you're not just, when envy takes place, you're not just discontented with your life, although that's part of it. You're disillusioned about your identity, and that's what happens with me. In her great book, Glittering Vices, in fact, we, we, we preached on vices and virtues a few years ago. You can go back and check out that sermon series. But Rebecca DeYoung, in her book, describes envy in this way, very, very stingingly. She says, it's not just that the other person is better. 
It is that by comparison, their superiority makes you feel your own lack, your own inferiority more acutely. If we reflect on whom we envy, we're likely to discover how we define our identity and where we see that identity as most vulnerable. In this way, again, envy is not just about wanting more. It is seeing what others have. It's getting bitter that they have more and hoping that they will somehow get less so that your identity can be established through this very sick and perverted game that we call comparison. And so the question for all of us is like, where are you comparing yourself? Who is the person that you're looking at who is just inches better than you in some way? Odds are that, that the place where you find envy rearing up, the person you're comparing yourself to, odds are seeds are being planted that will produce the rotten fruit of disdain, of despair, of disillusionment in your life when you realize you don't match up to this person. And so we should be mindful and attentive to the people that we tend to compare ourselves to. And odds are you have that person in mind even now as I say that. So who are you comparing yourself to? Now, the second question to, to kind of ask to identify envy in our lives, and this one, is a, this one stings, but it's also the most effective way to discern it, is who in your life do you want to see fail? Who in your life do you want to see fail? Because again, envy is not just wanting more. Envy is wanting others to have less. And like I said, this is perhaps the best tool in identifying envy. Envy is, jealousy just wants more of something else, Envy wants more than someone else. You see the difference there? Jealousy is just concerned with the thing. Envy wants the other person to be inferior in some way. And there is a world of difference between those two. Jealousy delights in being better than others. Envy delights in seeing others fail. And we all have that person in our life. That person who it just seems like everything is going so well for, like just their life seems perfect, like everything is wonderful and you just kind of hate them for it. And, and you're just kind of hoping and waiting that some failure or disappointment or frustration happens to them. Not because you're that malicious, but you want them to be knocked down a notch so that you feel better about yourself. Right? Or am I the only person that feels that way? <laughs> But seriously, I mean, we all have that person, you, like th that person who like their life is perfect and you look at them and you say like, man, they're so perfect, but you're thinking in the back of your mind, well, she probably has high cholesterol. You know, like, like you're justifying their good life and hoping there's some secret, or like he probably cheats on his taxes. You know, it's like there's something you're trying to say in your mind to make yourself feel better that you don't match up to them. And so who is that person in your life? I, I really want us to give serious thought. I mean, odds are you all have someone in mind right now. And it might be someone you're sitting in close proximity to. I, and I'll say, as, as far as it should be from the truth, the church of Jesus Christ, this community can be a, a, a prime soil for envy to be rooted in. And we must be very careful of that. And so who is the person you're comparing yourself to? Who is the person you hope to see fail? And if we follow the breadcrumbs of our envy back far enough, I think eventually we will find the thing that we have built our life around. We'll find the thing that we hope will give us validation and identity and worth. But what we will find, just that, which is true of envy, is that when we trace it back, we find that envy never gets us what we want. So we, we need to see who are we comparing ourselves to? Who are we hoping to see fail? But, but these two things only help us identify envy. They, they don't really help us in warring against it. And so how do we, so to speak, put envy in a pit? 
We need to see who we compare ourselves to. We need to see who we hope to see fail. But how can we put envy in a pit? And let me suggest three really quick things for us. The first is that we need to show kindness, which sounds incredibly trite and like very trivial. But, but by kindness, I don't mean just like saying nice things and being polite. Kindness, kindness in its, in its true meaning is the sincere desire for and pursuit of the happiness and the well-being of someone else. Kindness is the genuine desire for and pursuit of the happiness and the well-being of someone else. And envy has no room to grow when kindness is the, the operating system of our heart. When our genuine desire is to see someone flourish, to see them pursue and find the good life, when it is genuinely our desire, envy has no room to grow in that soil. It's kind of like, I've used this metaphor before, but it's kind of like the way you build a healthy lawn is not just by pulling out weeds. That's true, you need to do that. The best way is to plant good grass seeds so that weeds don't have room to grow. In the same way, the way we battle envy is not by saying, I shouldn't be envious, I should stop having envious thoughts, but rather we should seek to cultivate kindness in genuinely desiring and pursuing the good of others. And so rather than allowing yourself to go down this path of asking the question, how can I be better than her? How can I defeat him? How can I kind of manipulate the situation to get this person to be beneath me, inferior to me? Instead of allowing yourself to go down that path, ask the question, how can I be a blessing to this person? How can I pursue desire and work towards the good of this person that I know my heart tends to envy and hopes to see fail in some way? We need to show kindness. Second, we need to express gratitude. We need to express gratitude. Because envy is the unbearable feeling that someone has more than you, you can't have envy and gratitude towards the same thing at the same time. I mean, it doesn't work. If if your envious heart is wanting this person to fail, you can't simultaneously be thankful that their life is better than yours or that their life is going well. Gratitude is one of the greatest ways to combat envy because envy cannot grow in the soil of gratitude. It can't. And, and I know, the, the way I've kind of seen this kind of play out in my life, I know that I struggle. It is so hard for me to compliment and to be thankful for and to express uh, gratitude for someone who is good at something that I know I should be good at or that I want to be good at. Are you tracking with me? Like, it, like, it's easy for me to compliment somebody who's good at math, because I'm not good at math, nor do I desire to be good at math. So I will compliment you all the day long if you're good at math. But if you're funnier than me, like, that, that, it's really hard, because what I do, by complimenting you, by being thankful for your gifting that is in competition with me, I have to admit that I am beneath you. And that's a humbling experience, but it's a good experience. But I tend to not be quick to thank people and to be grateful for those who are funnier than me, smarter than me, faster than me. And so what is that for you? What are those areas? I mean, odds are you're going to interact with someone tomorrow in your Monday life who you are in competition with and who you will struggle to be thankful for. How can you uniquely express gratitude to this person as a way to battle the envy that plagues all of us? So we need to show kindness, we need to express gratitude, but lastly, we need to practice simplicity. We need to practice simplicity. Now hear me, it's, it's not wrong to, to have things, to have wealth, 
Uh, but, but when we allow things and wealth, or maybe particularly the things and wealth of others, whether it's our own or others, when we allow that to entice us to, con- to continue to accumulate more, we find ourselves going down this slippery slope of envy. When we allow ourselves to kind of slowly, but like in keeping up with the Joneses, increasing our lifestyle because we're in competition with those around us, we tend to find we are paving the way for envy to enter into our hearts. And in this way, when when we are slowly kind of increasing and accumulating, what we find is that we are not being tempted by envy in that moment. We are actually tempting envy into our life. You see see the difference there? We tend to think that like, oh, I'm being tempted by envy because I want this person. But, But it is through the gradual accumulation of things and the comparison with others and seeing what they have and I want a little bit more. He just got this new car. I want to maybe get one a little bit better. That kind of thinking and practices actually shows that we are not being tempted by envy, but we are tempting envy to come to us. So what does that look like to practice simplicity? Maybe it means means adjusting your budget. Maybe it does mean giving away a few things. Maybe it means downsizing your home or your car. Maybe it means trimming out some things in your wardrobe. Or maybe it means scaling back on your entertainment and vacation budget. Again, it's not because these things are are the the solution, but they may help guard us from becoming envious. But what we may also find is that when we kind of scale back and live simplistically, we also can find that we curb the envy in others towards us. And this this is where it might sting a bit, because some of us need to practice simplicity because we are tempted to envy others who have more, But some of us need to practice simplicity because we delight in the fact that others envy us. You see what I'm saying? Like that that one hurts a little bit. It hurt when I wrote it. Because while I know that there are people in my life that I envy, I know that there are other people who are envying me. And am I mindful of how I am contributing to that? Do I know that when I purchase something or post something or share something, am I doing it in such a way that I want this person to kind of want my lifestyle? And in so doing, I'm actually fanning the flames of envy that might deteriorate that relationship. So some of us need to practice simplicity because we are tempted to envy others. Some of us need to practice simplicity because we are tempted to get others to envy us. We are a peculiar people, aren't we? And the way we envy others, the way we get others to envy us. And it's not just, it's not our insatiable desire for more or the the unending pursuit of wanting to be better than others, although it is that. Our envy ultimately comes from this. If we want to know the root of it, our envy ultimately comes from a failure or a refusal to trust in the goodness of God and the joy of his promises. Which I know sounds like a really churchy answer, but but when when you boil it down, really, our envy comes from the fact that God is withholding something from me, that he's not really uh, looking out for my best interest, he doesn't actually care, he's incapable of doing that. Really, at the end of the day, envy comes from the belief that God is not enough. And when God is not enough, then envy will have its way with us and lead us down a path where we will find that envy never gets us what we want. But as we will see, as we continue on in the story of Joseph, we will find that Joseph, he continued to trust God even though his life fell apart, even though his brothers, through their envious actions, it resulted in in Joseph losing everything, finding himself in prison, left for dead. He continued to trust God in the midst of this, knowing that God would not abandon him or forsake him. 
And, and we have the luxury of stepping back and looking at Joseph's story on this side of the cross and knowing that, that the way and the reason why he is able to trust God in the midst of hardship and difficulty, knowing that God will work out all things for his good, is because we see that, that is the, the way in which God treats Joseph and cares for him in the midst of his hardships and difficulties is the way in which God treats and interacts with us. You see, the, the irony is that while we are tempted by envy to place others beneath us, the good news of God's love is that through Jesus, he placed himself beneath us to bring us up. As we try to, in, in a fabricated way, elevate ourselves by putting others beneath us, Jesus entered into our world, placed himself beneath us by dying in our place, entering the pit that we deserve to die in so that he might raise us to new life. The credibility of God's promises being kept in the story of Joseph comes from the greater story of Jesus who entered the pit that we deserve to die in so that he might bring us into newness of life. And so what the beginning of the story of Joseph is telling us is that while we envy things all the time and entice people to envy us, while envy never gets us what we want, the story of Joseph is paving the way for the truth and the good news that Jesus offers us all that we need. And so fundamentally, what hides behind our envy is the desire, is the desire for more than what God offers us. While envy never gets us what we want, the good news is that Jesus offers us all that we need. The question is, do we believe that? And do we live our lives in light of that truth? Let's take a moment to just to pray and just honestly reflect before the Lord where we are in this struggle, in this battle of envy, where we compare ourselves how we are seeking others to fail, and where we are completely entrapped by this, by this vice called envy. So let's just take a moment to pray together. Father in heaven, even now as I stand, I, as, I, as I look out on the eyes of, of my brothers and sisters in this room, Lord, there are people here I envy. There are people here who I look upon their life and I want what they have, but I also hope in some way Lord, that there would be something that would allow me to, to be better than them. Lord, help me to see the foolishness in my own heart. Help us all to see that, that what is at the root of our envy is the failure to trust that you are good and that your plans for us are for our good, for our flourishing. Lord, would you convict us of the sin of envy that, that ruptures relationships, that tears families and communities apart, and may we be a people, Lord, who, who seek to show kindness, to express gratitude, and live simplistically in such a way that we find the goodness of the life that you've called us to live. Lord Jesus, may we see you as the greater Joseph who was thrown into a pit for our sake that we might be brought to newness of life, and may that be our hope. Lord, we pray this all in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.